sbs.com.au. Welcome to Noir Here, this podcast with me, Johan Gabrielsson. In each program, we highlight some of the best writers of this crime genre and meet the people behind the popular TV shows that have spread Nordic Noir around the world. Today we focus on Denmark. In our second episode in this series, we met the queen of Danish crime writing, Sara Bleidel. In today's program, we meet the king, Jussi Adler Olsen. We also meet Anne Mette Hancock and Luni Teagues, representing the next generation of Danish crime writers. Both of their first books have become instant bestsellers and represent a Nordic noir with an international twist. But first, Jussi Adler Olsen. His books have been translated into 40 languages and have been on the top bestseller lists all over the world. Let's hear an excerpt from his series of books about Section Q, the special cold case unit in Denmark. Here, the main character, Karl Mörk, contemplating how all the murder and violence he experienced in his life has affected him. It was only a couple of weeks out of the police academy when the site of his first murder victim had been burned permanently onto Karl's retina. A small, slight woman who had been strangled by her husband and ended up lying on the floor with dull eyes and an expression that had left Karl feeling sick for weeks afterwards. Since then, scores of cases had followed. Each morning he had prepared himself to face it all. The bloody clothes, the waxen faces, the frozen photos. Every day he listened to people's lies and excuses. Every day a crime in a new guise, gradually making less and less of an impact on him. Twenty-five years on the police force and ten in homicide had hardened him. That's how things had gone, until the day when a murder case pierced his armour. According to Jussi Adler Olsen, the style of crime writing in Scandinavia today is very different from when he wrote his first book of fiction back in 1997. So the climate in, uh, in Scandinavia about crime literature had changed a lot. Uh, they are getting cleverer, all my competitors, <laughs> and uh, also they're being more uh, widespread in the world. You have to raise your bar in every single book because the competition is getting stiffer and stiffer. Well, I'm a lucky guy because I never feel the competition for the first. And secondly... I never read my fellow colleagues. 
I haven't read a crime or a thriller book from no country the last, let's say, 15 years. I don't want to feel pressed, and I also want to feel original. Maybe I'm not, but I don't know it. That's an advantage, isn't it? <laughs> so, no, uh, I don't feel it at all. But before 15 years ago, did you read thrillers or crime stories then? And what were you influenced Ab by? Absolutely, I did. I was influenced by uh, your fellow nation guys like uh, Shrivan and Valu from the 70s. And, and all of us are. We are very, very much influenced by Shrivan and Valu. Not really by Stig Larsson or, or anyone else. He was influenced by them too. So they are our, our heroes and our role models. And why? Because they combined, you know, all the topics, political topics, social topics, good plot. But first of all, a wonderful dialogue. And we learned a lot from them. I, I read them, of course. I read, of course, also a lot of international writers, but mostly thriller writers like uh, John Grissom and uh, Frederick Forsyth and so forth. When you, one read about you, you, you realize very quickly that you had a very unusual childhood. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it, it's not really that unusual. I think there's a few thousand people that experienced that in Denmark only. But uh, my childhood was in uh, hospitals of insane. My father, he worked in, in those hospitals. The whole family moved along and followed him from one hospital to another. But it was a very, very fantastic period of treatments because actually you had no treatment in the early 50s except for electroshock and strapping down and, you know, drug medicinates. But not really, not really something that could call for the personality of the patient. And when I was five years old, I couldn't really talk to them. There were screaming cages uh, outside in the summertime where they were sort of naked, the patients, and where they tried to spit on you when you passed. And my father explained to me, well, you have to realize uh, that we are in a sad condition here because we can't really help them. But the year after, the psychopharmaca came to Denmark. And the psychopharmaca brought forward the personalities of the patients, and then suddenly I could talk to them and had reasonable answers. Mm. I was six years old at that period. Does this experience have a huge impact on the characters or the way that you feel towards the characters in your book? Well, it could be, but uh, it had certainly a, a, a lot of impact on me. I, I, I grew up and never feared confronting people And I never feared to have people around me who were a little odd. I could say I learned every line and every place of society because of that. Of course, I knew a lot of how good and evil certainly are well combined in every person's mind. And in my main characters, who are having a lot of secrets, we love them. But we know that there are some evil in them. I read also that you worked as a film composer. Is there a correlation between writing books and music, the way that one organizes the structure? To my mind, uh, the best art is where there's one voice missing, the missing voice, so to speak. And uh, about music, uh, if you are fond of classical music, you can listen to Beethoven maybe two hours if you're not a fan directly, because his using all the 108 voices in the partitura. And uh, you could say it's overproduced. 
And then suddenly you can't take it anymore. But it's wonderful, but not more than a few hours. Uh, at the opposite, we have Mozart. And Mozart, he took out, and he knew which took out a few voices from the party tour. So we had the missing voices like humming or the third voice of ourselves. So we could sing along and feel that we were a part of the music more than in the music of Beethoven. And in, uh, in writing, the same is true because if you take out a few descriptions here and there, and if you're not being detailed, and you, if you really think about the reader, not the listener, but the reader, how they feel and how they read it, then you know by heart that the most important thing for a writer is that you trick the fantasy of the reader and make the reader do most of the story themselves. And very, very often I, I have been asked, why are you so detailed? Why are you so grim uh, and gruesome? And I had to reflect about it, but I all, always answer, what well, is your mind the gruesome things happen. I didn't describe a flood of blood. I just mentioned there was blood on the floor. And it's all up to you to see how much it was. And it's really true. If you can trick them, the mind and the fantasy, then we cooperate. You have to realize, for instance, if you, your wife or mostly women lie in the bed late evening and read my books, and uh, within 50 minutes, they are laying their head on the pillow. And then I come with a small sentence that is actually a cliffhanger. And then they, they raise their heads and read along for 10 minutes. So now you have to put in some humor. You have to make them laugh in that situation. And when they laugh, you trick the endorphins in their brains and then they can't sleep. Now I have them half an hour more. <laughs> and then after this half an hour, you put in a murder or some violent stuff, and then they can't sleep at all. Jussi Adler Olsen. She's described as the next big thing in Danish crime fiction. Anne-Mette Hancock's first book, The Corpse Flower, caused a sensation when it came out. Suddenly, Anne-Mette was thrown into the spotlight and became the face of a new generation of Danish crime writers. She describes her writing having a more international flavor, with less introverted, conflict-avoiding Scandinavian characters. The story of her first book, The Corpse Flower, begins in a calm village square somewhere in France. She walked down the high street, the market in the square, where she stopped in between the stalls and shoppers to savour the vibrant atmosphere. A group of children had gathered around a small rickety table. On the table was a cardboard box, and inside it, a kid goat allowed itself to be petted by eager hands. A sturdy man in dungarees pushed his way between a pair of twin boys and stuffed a bottle into the mouth of the kid, which sucked its contents with gratitude. With his free hand, he held out a plastic basket to the parents who were watching and smiling at their children's excitement. Reluctantly, they fished out some coins from their pockets and tossed them into the basket. The man thanked them mechanically and immediately yanked the bottle from the mouth of the hungry kid. 
spraying milk to all sides. Anna spent a long time watching the man repeat the performance. She was about to snatch the bottle from his hand in disgust when she noticed an elderly couple sitting under a flourishing wisteria at a cafe across the street. The man was bald and wearing a bright yellow polo shirt. His attention was on his croissant. It was his shirt that had caught Anna's eye. But it was the small, apple-cheeked woman in the cafe chair by his side who had caused her to stop in her tracks. She didn't have time to register what the woman was wearing. All she saw was the camera the woman was holding up and the look of surprise as she stared at Anna. Anna turned and walked with measured steps to the nearest street corner and turned around it. Then she started to run. Almeta Hancock lived and studied for many years in the US. She then returned to Denmark and began a successful career as a freelance journalist. On vacation in France, Hancock saw a woman at a cafe looking out of a window, and the seed of the corpse flower was sown. It was the summer of 2012. I was in, in uh, this small village in France where I used to live with my family when I was a kid. And I was there with my husband and our children, and it was market day. And uh, at one point, we're just standing, we're watching, my kids were watching some stuff, and I was waiting for them to move along. And I, I look up across the street, there was a cafe, and I see this woman who was like staring at me. And I could tell from the look in her eyes that she recognized me, like she was trying to figure out from where. And it turned out it was somebody that I went to school with when I was a kid in that small village. And... For some reason, that look in her eyes, like the, the curious, who are you? I know you from somewhere kind of look. It made me turn to my husband and say, I just got the idea for like an opening scene in a crime novel. <laughs> uh, there's this woman who's like on the run from something or someone. And she's like under the radar, hiding in this tiny village. And then one day on the market square, she is recognized by some a tourist, some, some woman. And then she had to flee the village. And so the next morning I, I got up early and I wrote the first like four pages of what is now Lee Blumston or The Court's Flower. It was just a scene. I didn't have an idea at that point to like a plot or like a storyline. Uh, I didn't know who this woman was or what she was doing there or who she was running from. I just had that scene. And then, I, yeah, I wrote that. And then we could, at the end of the vacation, I had to go back to my regular job and I sort of forgot about the book for couple of years until eventually I said to my husband, maybe I should try and finish this. And, um, and then I had to figure out, so, so what's the story? Who, who did what and why? Why do you think this book has been so successful in Denmark? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, if, uh, if uh, I knew the answer to that, I would just duplicate it and do it again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think maybe I'm at a disadvantage because I don't know what to compare it to. I've never read Danish crime novels. I, I've never read, even the great ones, even the Juicy Adler Olsen or the Sarah Bladles, I haven't read them because I've always been uh, very into American crime fiction and, and British novelists. I don't know what, how it differentiates. I think maybe I'm, the characters that I like are a little more, I don't want to say tougher, but they're less sad than what's usually uh, depicted in Danish crime novels and crime TV and Usually, there's a lot of um, the main characters in Danish fiction. They're all often very 
depressed and, uh, you know, they, they find life to be a major challenge and it, they're sort of sad in a way. And I like my heroes, like the John Wayne type of, <laughs> type of people. I, I like my heroes to, to be somebody that I can look up to. Of course, they have challenges as well as everybody else in life, but they're a little more tough, I think. And I don't know, maybe that's, maybe I'm not the only one who likes that. I know you're working on your second book. What did you learn on, from writing your first one that you will then use in this one? The, the major difference for me uh, writing the first one and now the second is the first time around, I didn't have anybody waiting for the book. I didn't have a publisher. I didn't, nobody, I mean, my, my family and friends knew that I was writing a book, but I didn't have anybody really besides my mom and my best friend kind of uh, read it along the way. So I spent almost a year writing some 300 pages that I really didn't know, like, you know, was it, was it going to be any good? Would anybody ever want to publish it? And it was very easy to, to think, oh, you know, I'm wasting my time. And so this time around, having a publisher that totally supports me and, and we've signed for the next four books, now I know this is a job for me now. I mean, at least for the next five or six years, I know that they're expecting me to deliver Uh, why are Danes so good with writing or making television about crimes? I'm, I'm guessing one of the reasons why uh, Danish uh, crime fiction has been popular in the last few years might have something to do with the fact that we're also publicly worldwide known as uh, supposedly the world's happiest people. And I'm thinking that people want the contrast. Well, let's kill some of them often <laughs> and, uh, and make it a little darker and a little less happy-go-lucky. If Anne-Mette Hancock found inspiration in the US and France, Lonely Teals is influenced by her many years working in the UK. Lonely was for many years the correspondent for two major Danish newspapers in London. It was a real-life crime that inspired her to write her first book, The Fatal Crossing. Here is an excerpt from The Fatal Crossing. We meet the main character, journalist Nora Sand, in a busy central London cafe. He dropped two lumps of sugar into his own cup and stirred at once. Then he started on his account of executions, rapes, mutilations and murders. The story swirled around Nora's head, one atrocity overtaking the next. School children witnessing the gang rape of their teacher before they themselves were hacked to death with machetes. Massacres of villages that went on until the murderers were too tired to lift their arms, and so they locked up the survivors with the corpses until the next day when the killing resumed. The man, who for his own security could only be referred to as Mr. Ben, resumed his monotonous narrative. Nora clutched her cup. The urge to throw hot tea into the face of the impassive man was overwhelming, To get a reaction, detect a hint of humanity in his expressionless face. Emotion. Regret. 
And yet she controlled herself. Because that's how Nora Sand, foreign correspondent for the Danish weekly magazine Globalt, operates. She listens, she gathers information and she writes. She's a pro. I have one final question, she said in a neutral voice. He gave her a look that had left humanity behind a long time ago. Yes. Why? Why did you do it? He gave a light shrug. Why not? It's what they deserved. There were nothing but cockroaches. All we did was clean out the kitchen. According to Looney Teals, it was a very conscious step to expand upon the Nordic noir genre with her book, The Fatal Crossing. If I had to describe what genre my book is, I'd say, you know, you take one part Nordic noir and then you take one part English crime thriller and then you put it into a mix and you shake it up. Some of the book takes place in Denmark and it takes place in the western part of Jutland, which is sort of a very rough area sort of coastal area, fishermen, people don't speak too much. Uh, mm. I don't know if you can relate to that, but uh, it's sort of, you know, it, people don't speak unnecessarily and it's it's sort of a little bit grim. And then uh, also my heroine, she's Danish, but uh, she's based in London. She's a journalist, so she works for a Danish paper, but she does write about British society. So half of it takes place in Denmark, half of it takes place in the UK. And the way that uh, the book describes the UK is sort of, as a journalist would see it. So in a way, you know an awful lot about the society because as a journalist, you move around, you speak to homeless people, you speak to politicians, you speak to rich people, you speak to everyone. Um, But at the same time, you're also an outsider, you're an observer. So you have sort of that duality that you're kind of, you're on the inside, but you're also watching from the outside. So that was what I was trying to describe as well. You said that your book is like a part Nordic Noir part English crime. What is the difference or the similarities between those two genres? Well, I think probably uh, the English or the British crime novel is not necessarily that uh, critical of society. It's probably more plot-driven. It's probably more sort of you just want to tell a good story and you want the page turner. And you, you do want that in Nordic Noir as well. But at the same time, I think there's an ambition probably more in, in, in Nordic crime literature that, yes, it should be entertaining, it should be thrilling, uh, but also it should say more than just the story. There should be some element that you take with you that describes the society that you are in at the moment or the society at least that the, the, the plot takes place in. Is Fatal Crossing based on a true story? And how did you come across the story and interweave it in your book? It's inspired by a true story in a way, and it was born out of frustration. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Basically, when I was a journalist, I came across the most fascinating story, which was about an American serial killer who had been convicted for four murders. And uh, since he was put in jail, he also confessed to another two. So we know for sure he killed uh, six people. And the way that he killed them was he was like a stalker type of killer. So he would take photos of them and then he would kill them. Now, after he was put in death row in California, where he, by the way, is still, because uh, as you probably know, in California, they they convict people to death, but they don't actually execute them. Then after he was put into jail, they found a storage room that was his. And uh, when they ransacked it, they found 200 photos of unknown people. 
girls mainly, but also small boys. Now, the police were absolutely keen to sort of identify these people to figure out if they had been, you know, victims of, of this killer. And one of these pictures were taken in Denmark. And the reason why they knew that was that um, there was a sign in the background saying something about Platform 7 and where to put your bicycles. And so American police contacted Danish police, and that's how I read the story, because uh, Danish police, they went to the press and they said, does anybody know? There was a picture of two girls. They were about 15 years old. They were looking straight at camera, so obviously they knew the photo had been taken. Does anybody know these girls? Are they still alive? And it was so fascinating for me, like, oh, my God, there was an American serial killer in Denmark. Maybe he had killed two girls. What happened? I just wanted to know so badly what had happened. And so I followed the news for several days, and uh, nothing sort of emerged. And then after a few weeks, there was like a really, really tiny story saying, yes, uh, the girl had been found and identified they were in good health, and um, they didn't want to uh, talk to the press. And I was so frustrated. (laughs) I was so frustrated. I really wanted to know what had happened. So that's when my thought of process actually started. And I thought, what if? How do you put you apart from other Danish writers or Scandinavian writers? Because I I have this feeling that I'm sure you also feel that there is this wave of crime writing coming out of Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark and Iceland. How do one create a niche for oneself? Do you think like that? I think you should be really careful about trying to plot something that you think will be popular because you never know. So I think you should just write more or less from the heart. And I think um, some of the feedback I've had from people who know me and they read the book and they say, you know what, the book is just like you. You write the way you talk. We can feel your voice in the book. So I think, you know, if, if you're true to yourself and how you write, that's how you do it. But having said that, of course, um, I've found some things that I think are particular about me and, and also uh, about my heroine. She's a journalist. I am a journalist. And um, she loves kickboxing. I kickbox for, for 12 years. And I think that's something special. And of course, the fact that she's based in London. And I think that kind of, that for me is probably the most special thing about Nora. Mm. Uh, my heroine is that she straddles sort of two countries. So mm. she's she's half British, half Danish. Her father's Danish, her mother's British. So she can sort of move around uh, these two countries. And I think that's something that people haven't sort of seen before. So you get both sort of your own hit of of Scandinavia when you read my book, but also if you want to sort of spend some time in London, you get that. And also, uh, Nora is uh, really a foodie. So I've I've had a lot of reactions from people saying, oh my God, I get so hungry when I read your book, I want to cook. <laughs> so, you know, but but that's exactly how it is to hang out with me, you know, in mm. a way. I'm, you know, I feel home in London. I feel home in Denmark and I cook a lot. I listen to Nina Simone like uh, Nora does and I, I love my kickboxing. So, you know, Hemingway, no comparison otherwise, but he always said, you know, write about what you know and I think that's what I've done. Lonely Teals. Thanks for listening to our podcast series Noir Hear This. This series is written and produced by me, Johan Gabrielsson, and technical production by Vlad Ladman. Andrew Bolton read from Jussi Adler Olsen's book The Hanging Girl. The readings from Luna Teal's book The Fatal Crossing were done by Belinda Hall. And Camilla Hannan read from Meta Hancock's book The Corpse Flower. 
In our next episode, we move to Finland. We visit the punk rocker who lives on a remote island in the Finnish archipelago. We also meet Mikko Oikanen, the man behind the popular TV show Border Town. The first episode was watched by a fifth of the Finnish population. And finally, Antti Toimanen, who crosses the border between Nordic noir fiction and poetry. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, subscribe via your favorite podcast app and review us on iTunes. It helps others find us. Goodbye. SBS On Demand is the home of Nordic Noir Down Under. From genre-defining titles like The Bridge to the newest wave of Scandi thrillers, get ready to binge with over 20 of the genre's best titles, including Trapped, Midnight Sun, Dicta, Modus, Below the Surface, and more. Buried secrets, buried bodies. Unearth all the best Nordic Noir on SBS On Demand now.